0: Most of the time. I mean, uh, go ahead and that wasn't in the notes. Uh, go ahead and turn to. Uh, are we recording? No. First uh, John. First John chapter two, please. First John chapter two, and we're starting in verse eighteen. And we will read through to the end of the chapter, which is verse 27. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. You can follow along in your own Bibles. Verse 18 says, Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth, who is a liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. He is Antichrist, who denies the Father, and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He has promised us. Eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. Lord God, we need your help in understanding uh, what you want to say to us. We pray that we would be receptive. Um, We're not asking that we would be wise, um, but rather that you would give us your wisdom. Lord, we know that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. So we posture our hearts now, our, our, our souls before you saying, uh, have your will, own way, Lord, have your own way. Um, mold us, make us. Teach what you want to say. Have us be who you want to be. Illuminate these things to our hearts so that we can understand and receive what your Holy Spirit is giving to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so um, whether or not this is, you know, one of the first times you've read this passage, whether you've read it a thousand times or two times, there's probably a few words that jump out at you in this text that has the, I can see the big question marks right over your heads, you know, Um, there's the big scary antichrist word, right? Like, you know we're going to have to spend some time explaining that one. Uh, But there's also, there's some less shocking words that show up an equal number of times in the passage that we also have to give uh, our our time to. Um, And it's really, there's a sort of answer or explanation of the idea of Antichrist given in this other word, anointed or anointing. Antichrist and anoint in some form show up three times each in these Verses they correspond to one another, they are connected. The word Christ is is the Greek for the Jewish word Messiah, which simply means anointed one. When you say Messiah, when you say Christ, when you say anointed, you're saying the same thing. You're just speaking three different languages. It's the same thing, anointed one. The Greek word that John uses is is um, for anoint here is chrism, um, and you have an anti-Christ and then a true Chris Christ, a true christening. You have an anti-anointing and you have a true anointing. Um, This christening, you've heard that word, a a christening of the believers that the believers had experienced was this anointing of the oil of the Holy Spirit. And it is in opposition to this anti-anointing, this anti-christening, this Um, anti-Christ. This christening, this anointing of the Holy Spirit has the effect of teaching them all things and leading them into all truth, which is exactly what Jesus had promised the disciples in John 16, 13. This this could be John's commentary on his own book. Um, You know, he's explaining things that he's already talked about in his gospel. The Holy Spirit would come and anoint you. There's a christening of the Holy Spirit that would lead you into all truth, and he's referring to that here in this passage. But it's not the only spirit out there. You know, it's not the only kind of anointing out there. There's false anointings, there's false Christs. Now, I actually want to start with uh, explaining this or attempting to do so with this consideration from verse 27, the last verse we came to. We'll move backwards. In verse 27, I'll read it again. It says, But the anointing, the chrisming, not really, but you know, English, the, the anointing that you received from him abides in you, your temples of the Holy Spirit, remember? So the anointing abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you but as his anointing teaches you about everything and it is true and is no lie just as he taught you abide in him. John is is saying that there is an anointing that is in every believer that teaches them. That lines up with we know who we're talking about, right? We're talking about the Holy Spirit. There are things uh, that the Holy Spirit reveals to all God's children And the simple truth that the Holy Spirit illuminates without fail, the one thing that he wants to talk about more than anything else is who Jesus is. It's that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man and he died for your sins and he's coming again. And Jesus said, he's testifying of me. The Holy Spirit talks about Jesus and this is the main Jesus stuff. Fully God, fully man, died for your sins, rose from the dead, is coming again. Um without um, the Holy Spirit this anointing that teaches them teaches them that without Christ we can do nothing and that with Jesus we have everything Jesus says this in John 15 John 15 26 he says but when the helper comes capital H helper when the helper comes whom I shall send to you from the father the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father he will testify of me that's what John is talking about in his letter so there's things that the Spirit teaches about Jesus. There, there are doctrinal things, uh, really doctrinal litmus tests for Christianity. Now, that's not very cool anymore uh, because people want truth to be subjective and have everyone believe their own stuff and say it's all good. Nope. Uh, but well, there, there's plenty of stuff. There's plenty of things that Christians t- can disagree on with each other and still be in the family. So if you just want to argue, there's plenty of stuff to argue about. You're welcome to them, okay? But there are certain things that are closed-handed issues. It's ridiculous to say, well, I'm a Christian. I just don't believe in Jesus. Like, come on. those, Those people shouldn't exist. I don't know that they do, okay? You cannot be a Christian and believe certain false things about Jesus. The promise is that if the Holy Spirit comes to you, and that is part of getting saved then the Holy Spirit will lead you to truth about Jesus. The specific truths that John brings up are the truths of Christ's humanity and his divinity. Those are the truths that were uh, on trial in many of the heresies that were beginning to develop in his day. John has been very clear in presenting opposites without a lot of middle ground. He's not really a gray area kind of guy in terms of light and darkness truth and lies he likes double meanings of certain words but when it comes to good and evil there's a line right um sin versus grace good versus evil truth versus lies light versus darkness and now he's sort of continuing in that same vein talking about an anti-christ or an anti-anointed one and then a true anointing that is its opposite and with these two sides and this in or out conversation, John has put truth and love on one side. And we kind of talked about that last, um, did we talk about that last week? Maybe next week we'll talk about that. I don't remember. Um, so he's putting truth and love on one side and, um, and, and hatred and error essentially on the other. You can't hate your brother and say that you know God, right? Um, now he's saying you can't believe these things about Jesus and then say that you worship him. You can't do it. It's just you're, you, made, you made a God in your own image, you made an idol, but it's not Jesus. Now we have to keep these foundations, these simple foundations, or uh, our faith dissolves. Uh, there will always be the temptation of course to pit one uh, virtue of the faith, like love, against another like truth, but John puts them both on one side and says there's no way to divide them. Um, the idea of having uh, truth and love somehow opposed to each other would be a foreign idea, of course, to Jesus and the apostles. In the first part of chapter two, John said that if you, if you know God but hate your brother, you're a liar. And now he's talking about another kind of liars, these antichrists. But so in other words, it, there's, there's been moral litmus tests to see if someone is walking with God. Well, do you love people? Do you? If you don't, you can't pretend that you love God and you and he are super close and, and best friends. You're just lying to yourself and maybe other people, but no one believes you. For John, there's a real line in the sand. Do you love people? Um, If you don't love people, there's no way you can really say that you're on our team. But that's not all. To be loving doesn't necessarily mean you know God. You might act well and believe wrong. And for John, that's the same line in the sand. It's not a different line. It's the same line. Truth and love. So he's talked about love already. We, We did talk about this last week and the week before. Because John talks about love a whole lot. Um, and now he's telling the church, you must believe certain things. You must behave a certain way. We've talked about that. You have to love people. Like, you, you really do. But you can't just say, I love people and I don't care anything about doctrine or theology. Uh, God might be real, might be not. Trinity, I don't care. He's like, no, you don't get to do that. You can't just say you love people and that's enough. You also have to live in reality. And the reality is, Jesus Christ is who he says he is. So there's non-negotiable doctrines that you must believe, that you must hold to. And for someone to deny these doctrines, for John, is just like them hating their brother, which is essentially murder, according to the Gospels. Truth and love, love and truth, not either or ever. Because John, uh, John writes the sentence, both these sentences are in John's works. God is love. And then he records Jesus saying, I am the truth. Same person, truth and love, always combined. And what we'll end up with as we look at the litmus test for true Christianity is a line between true believers who John says he's writing to. He's confident in their salvation. And then he also writes about false believers. Those who looked like they were believers for a while and they went out from us and they're not of us. There's such a thing as false converts and John writes about them. And there's such a thing as false doctrine, and those who go out believe them. There is a line. He's talked about that line in terms of love. Now he's talking about it in terms of truth. There are things that are true, and there are things that are false. Well, John sounds confident that the church receiving this letter, um, that the little children that he writes to, know and believe the truth. You know, he believes that they confess Christ. They have an anointing of Christ that is in them. The Holy Spirit is in them. And he's saying, he's writing to them so that they know they have eternal life. He wants them to be confident that their faith is secured. Um, But he also knows with that same confidence that there are those trying to deceive them. We read that in verse 26. Go back to verse 18 at the beginning. We'll spend most of our time just in these first verses right here. In verse 18, he says, little children, it is the last hour Did you know that? Did you know this is the last hour? Did you know that we are living in the last days, that the end times are literally not upon us? They're here. They're not like impending. These are the last days. They're not soon. They're now. Now, this has been a Christian truth uh, that has been held up since the church's inception, which, of course, makes for some, uh, this conversation about the last days and the end times seem to some less urgent and important that is not the right attitude to have. We need to learn a few things from John here when he says this thing about the last hour. First thing you notice it seems very unlikely that John thought the church would last another two thousand years on this earth. I think I, I think you would have been surprised if someone said that while he was writing this. You know maybe after his visions he had another idea you know but but at this point he's saying it's the it's the end it's it's now it's the end. And he's not thinking that the church would end. Oh, no. He believed that the world would end and the church would keep going. John lived like it was the end. And there's a very practical reason for this. This isn't just popcorn theology that's fun to read books about or something. This is how you live. You live as if Christ is coming soon. He wrote in John 3, or 1 John 3, 2 uh, and 3. You can turn the page back and read it for yourself. It says, Beloved, now we are children of God and has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. He says it's the end times, and we're going to see him, and we don't know what we're going to be like, except that we'll be like him. And if you have your hope on seeing Jesus, you will live a holy life. Christ being revealed there in those verses is a reference to the end, to the second coming of Christ. Christ. Paul has the same attitude of hopeful expectation for the coming of the Lord, as does Peter. In fact, the flow of John's argument here follows Paul's in the book of Titus very closely. Um, Last week, a little bit of review. Last week, we saw how John said that we are not to love the world or the things of the world. And he says the world, but using his definition, um, you know, it's not plants and trees and mountains and stuff. It's the lust of the eyes and the lust lust of life, uh, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh and the pride of life. Lust and pride is the, uh, the things of the world. And then he said in verse 17, the world is passing away. So I don't want you to get attached to these worldly things that are just fake counterfeits. Because it has an expiration date. It, it gets sour like milk. Okay. Well, set your hopes on something more substantial. And so now he's saying in very classic prophetic tones, the end is near. It is the last hour. And then in chapter 3, he's going to talk about seeing Jesus and how this hope has a sanctifying effect on those who have it. He's going to talk more about that. So there's this sequence. Can you see he talks about the world? Don't get attached. It doesn't last. Lust doesn't last. It comes to an end. So look to Jesus. In Titus chapter 2, this is Paul's argument. It's the same flow. It's the same order. Titus 2, 11 uh, through 13 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, key phrase there, you should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. So denying the worldly lusts is accomplished in part by having your eyes fixed on what is next. Okay, this is a truth. Your hope will determine your habits. Your hope will determine your habits. Where you're looking forward to will determine how you get there, how you progress there. So John, Peter, Paul, they have this idea that it's the last hour and the end is near. And so they, they busy themselves about their father's business. And Peter even talks to the people, and some of them might be here, who say, well, he's taken a long time. And he says, don't don't get into God's calendar and try to sort that out. Are you crazy? Like he's got a completely different view of time than you do. This is a paraphrase, by the way. Don't quote me. Okay? And and the the, the essence is live with expectations. Live with expectations of Christ. And whether you, whether your, your beliefs say, you know, Jesus is coming back this afternoon between 3.30 and 4. Or you're going to live 80, 90, 100 years and then die, either way, you're seeing Him very soon. Life is a vapor, right? Like if the Lord should tarry to the year 2,212, you're not sitting, you don't wait that long. You're not going to be here in year 2,212. You're seeing Christ soon. And those who have that hope in them purify themselves because your hope will determine your habits. So John is in the middle of this argument, this argument of don't get attached to the world, look to heaven, live accordingly. He's talking about the world that is fading away and he is living like he is at the world's edge. And as I mentioned, the other apostles seem to have the same attitude. Uh, there's a, a passage in 1 Thessalonians where Paul is uh, giving assurance to the church that their dead relatives are not lost just because they missed the second coming. It's like, no, they're, they're going to be there. It's fine. Um, he says there's a resurrection of the dead that will happen and that the living will participate in this resurrection as well and one of the interesting things about the way Paul talks about that and talking about that final resurrection the end right is he includes himself in the church and the church that he's writing to in those who are alive and remain it says we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air um that word for caught up in Latin is is rapio where we eventually got the word rapture from Uh, but to be caught up in the air the real meat of that passage of course is not the nature of the catching up it's the end where it says we will always be with the Lord like that's the part that you circle three times and underline Um, but of secondary importance is that it seems that Paul was ready he was ready for the end to come in his lifetime right then he wasn't putting things off he wasn't the servant that Jesus talks about who says he's been gone a long time put your feet up You've worked hard. Relax. Paul never had that attitude. And what kept him, you know, in the game, so to speak, is this idea that he writes about. He says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that's better than staying here. I'm looking forward to it. I have my eyes fixed on heaven. Paul was ready to be there at the end of time when Jesus comes back and takes his church to himself. Peter also believe that the last days were upon him. On Pentecost, the Holy Spirit shows up. He preaches the the church's first sermon from Joel chapter two, which says, and it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. And Peter says, it's happening now. Peter readily said, these are the last days. And the obvious problem with this is that there's been a lot of days since, right? And so Peter preaches this sermon, and and then Jesus didn't come back. And Paul was not caught up in the clouds, and John did not witness the final passing away of the world, except through vision. And if this makes you scratch your head, you're not alone. People were already taking issue with this kind of language in the days of the apostles. And Peter writes about it. Peter addresses the question, what's taking God so long? And his answer is, well, God is busy having mercy on people. You're going to stop him? Here's what he writes. 2 Peter 3.8 says, But beloved, do not forget the one thing. this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness, See, and that, I like that as some count slackness it's like are you calling God lazy do you want to be that guy as some count slackness he's like looking at certain people you know but his long suffering towards us not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance yeah. and then he goes on to, to say how the the end will come and the earth will burn and he concludes that this knowledge ought to lead us to holy living just like John argues in 1 John 3 2 just like Paul writes to Titus So what we see with Peter is this perspective. His perspective, excuse me, is broad. He says the Lord is coming and coming quickly, but I don't know when. And the church has read the words of Revelation 22, verse 20, the last words of the Bible with faith and hope. Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. But Peter is not under the impression that God is held to Peter's idea of uh, his timetable. And I would argue that the other apostles probably share this healthy perspective of having a hands-off approach as far as, you know, marking God's calendar of uh, making his appointments for him. These are the last days. You're part of his welcoming committee, not so much his planning committee. So far, there's been a lot of last days. But after 10,000 years bright shining as the sun, as the song goes we will look back from a heavenly perspective with perfect 20 hindsight and see that the church age, all 2,000 plus years of it, were over like that. When you gain this heavenly perspective, the size of things changes. Man becomes small, God becomes big, a lifetime is short, and like Paul said about all his terrible persecutions that sound to us like a pretty big deal, these are light and momentary afflictions. Can't even mention them in the same breath with the glory that's coming. This gift of perspective is what Moses prays in today's psalm, Psalm 90, verse 12. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Live like your days are numbered because they are. So John writes to the little children. It's the last hour. John says this is the last hour and we agree with him. We recognize that by holding to this perspective that Christ is coming quickly and that we ought to be ready for him at any time. Like the parable of the ten virgins who have their oil for their lamps, their anointing for their lamps, we keep ourselves holy, we purify ourselves, and we busy ourselves about the Father's business. And the need for this attention to purity, both moral purity, loving one another, and doctrinal purity, believe the right things about Jesus, It's of the utmost importance in the dark days in which we live. These dark days are what John turns his attention to now. Verse 18 for the third time. Here we go. Talking a lot today. Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. And they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. Now, I'm sure a lot of things come into your mind when you hear that word Antichrist, right? And you've been waiting. Why is he talking about all this other stuff so long? Bring on the Antichrist. Make this sermon interesting. Okay, let's talk about the Antichrist. Uh, Perhaps you're imagining something from an apocalyptic piece of fiction, uh, a political leader that will persecute the church, usher in the one world government, make people get 666 tattooed on their forehead, something like that. Most interpretations, most interpretations of the book of Revelation identify the beast, that worships the dragon, who is Satan, as the Antichrist, which may or may not be helpful for understanding the actual references in scripture to the Antichrist. Because John is the only author in scripture who uses this phrase, and he never uses it in the book of Revelation. And he uses it here, and then once in Second John, and that's it. The word Antichrist is never in the book of Revelation. When John speaks of Antichrist here, he is talking about false teachers and false Christians. Now, when he says you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, they'd heard it before. Where had they heard that before? Well, they'd heard that from the Gospels. They heard that from Jesus. Matthew 24:24. 24, 24. Jesus is very clear. He says false Christs and false prophets will rise. That's what he told them. It's recorded in Mark chapter 13:22 as well. More than one people heard him say it. False saviors, false messiahs, false prophets, false miracle workers. They'd been warned. Paul also warned against uh, someone called the lawless one as well in 2 Thessalonians 2. He says, let no one deceive you by any means for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshiped. So that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And now this parallels with some of John's visions in Revelation very well, referring to the the beast. So you can easily see why people have called this person the Antichrist. And that could be who John is mentioning when he says you've heard that the Antichrist is coming. But it's definitely not his main point. He is definitely not just talking about an Antichrist figure that's going to come and be Nero or the Pope or something or whoever the church has made up about this guy. In fact, if you're reading the ESV or some of the more modern translations, you'll notice that it doesn't talk about the Antichrist. It just talks about Antichrist with a lowercase a. Most ancient manuscripts would agree with this uh, phrasing. And it certainly fits better with the way John uses the word here and in 2 John. So what does he mean when he says Antichrist? Since it's obvious that many antichrists, plural, many have come in already by the time he's writing this in the maybe 90s AD. He's talking about leaving, he's talking about antichrists who had been in the church and left the church. Um, And they're not some influential world leaders or anything. Now again, the word antichrist does not mean against Christ. It means instead of Christ. This makes sense in light of Jesus' prophecy of false Christs. What is a Christ? Again, this this Christ, Messiah, means anointed. It's an anointed savior leader. So in John's time, there had already been many people claiming a spiritual authority, claiming a special anointing that said, follow me, I'll make your dreams come true. (laughs) The early church was plagued with this kind of thing. And it still happens. Someone comes up by saying that they have a special anointing, a special authority, and try to gather people to themselves. And it sounds like such a harsh insult, but John calls these false teachers antichrists. That's what they are. Do you hope in that man or Jesus Christ? If your hope is in him instead of Christ, he's antichrist. Though it might seem rude to tell him to his face. But John gives a clear, concise definition of what an antichrist would teach. Look at verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. And then he gives another detail in 1 John 4, chapter 3. We'll get to that in, in good time. But in chapter 4, verse 3, it says, And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. He's going to double down on this point, giving the same definition in 2 John. 2 John, verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. So in this context, you see that the anti-Christian message, the doctrine that was that was trying to replace the truth was the doctrine that denied either the humanity or the divinity of Christ. And that has always been at the basis of every heresy and cult that has come out of Christianity is those two truths. Every single one. In in this context, you see that the anti-Christian message, this, this denial of either the humanity or the divinity of Christ was was paring off, you know, people from the church. They had church and then someone's like, well, yeah, we want to worship Jesus, but because he's a good man and he's our good example and, you know, we're, we're fans. And he's like, get out <laughs> or repent. Um, there, was, uh, there were those who denied that Jesus, was, um, that, that Jesus was the Christ. There was those who denied that he was the son of the father. And John mentions that, right? If they deny the son and the father... This idea of the relationship between Jesus, the second person of the Trinity and his father, um, shows that Christ is divine. Sons share in the nature of their father. The father's divine, therefore the son is divine. The early church saw clearly that prophecies of the Christ, the anointed one, were prophecies concerning someone more than a man, one who is eternal. Daniel sees this in chapter Daniel two, um, or seven. The Davidic covenant, we see this. So there were those who wanted to see Jesus as a man, even as a good one. Uh, but perhaps they would see his message as purely you know, humanistic, um, denying the father and the son relationship, denying that he was a God-man or anything like that. And they would remove every hint of religion or theology from their brand of false Christianity and just make it a philosophy, which Paul preaches about pretty loudly. Right? But there were also those who fell off the other side. They'd fall off the other side, those who denied that Christ had come in the flesh. That's what John preaches against in chapter 4 and then again in 2 John. This was not a denial that Jesus existed or that he came at all. It was weirder than that. There were those who acknowledged the supernatural nature of Jesus of Nazareth, but they couldn't imagine the scandal of the incarnation. If Jesus was God, then there is no possible way that he ever had to clean his fingernails. Right? If Jesus is truly God, then he couldn't be in a human body because I live in one of those and it's gross sometimes, right? So they draw that line. They couldn't, there's no possible way he could have taken on flesh as the gospels say that he did. This philosophy was sort of an anti-materialism. The spirit is good, but the flesh is evil. Spiritual things are holy. Physical things are unholy. There's all sorts of cults surrounded around this idea. This is extremely un-Christian Christianity is an incarnational doctrine. It is always taught that the body does matter. The physical is important. And we get that truth from the fact that God became a man, a real, live, physical person, and is coming again as glorified man. If you deny this, you are Antichrist. The Antichrists that John condemns were those who said either, Jesus is not the Son of God, but he's really, really cool. He's like, that's Antichrist. Or they're like, Jesus is the divine, ultimate, super idea, and but he he never left footprints when he walked. You're Antichrist by saying Jesus was a spiritual being and he wasn't real. Uh, you know, because reality, as we experience it, is defiled and unholy and bad. There's just no way heaven and earth could overlap in a meaningful way. John says, wrong Antichrist. Antichrist for John was a message or the people delivering the message were antichrists. Antichrist for John was a message that denied the true nature of Christ. And this was not a hypothetical idea for him. This wasn't a research paper for John. Churches at his time had split over these doctrines. Cults had started because of these doctrines. People had left the church because they wouldn't let go of these false ideas. Verse 19 says they went out from us but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are—they all are—not of us. Now, what what John is talking about here is not backsliding Christians. Um, he's not talking about Christians that made a mistake and then got their name blotted out of the book of life. He's talking about avowed heretics. Don't use that word too much, by the way. Save it for special occasions. (laughs) This passage has always been an important ingredient in the conversation about a person's eternal security. You know, can I lose my salvation? This is not a question that comes from reading the scripture and seeing a bunch of people get saved and then sent to hell. You won't read that Bible story. But it does come from experience, right? A shared experience. We know people. Man, it looked like they were walking with the Lord. Really did. We know people who if we had if we had to call it they they were in. They're pretty good Christians and then they weren't. For whatever reason something happened and then they weren't. They walked away. And so this raises questions. Did they lose their salvation? What what happened? And theologians and just Christians will go back and forth on this and there's there's one of the things that we can't actually disagree on in the church and not call each other heretics, okay? So use that one for special occasions. Uh, the first thing you have to acknowledge in that discussion is that you don't get to have the answer. Uh, In other words, you don't get to say who's in or out. That's really not up to you. Praise the Lord, right? Should we sing again? Because that's enough right there. Like you don't get to say that you don't know the condition of someone's soul, especially in the moment of death. You don't know. In general, I subscribe to the, um, the Latin phrase for this doctrine is the rubber band theory. Um, it's the rubber band uh, theory of backsliding Christians. You know, if they're, if they're pulling away from, cra- from Christ, he's going to snap them back. But the further they go, the more it's going to hurt. They might not survive it. You know, but he's going to get them. He's going he's to pull them back. Uh, it's the rubber band theory. Um, Jesus makes it very clear that believer, of believers that no one can take them from my Father's hand. I don't think I'm strong enough to take myself out of the Father's hand. We also know that John is writing this letter in part to give believers confidence that their salvation is secure. 1 John 5.13, he says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You don't have to guess. You can know you have eternal life. But what about those guys we know? What about those who leave, who walk away? Well, in John's example of these antichrists, he says, they were not of us. He says that to continue in the truth is essentially the best evidence for salvation. Now, apostasy, which is just the fancy word for leaving the church in favor of bad doctrine. You've decided to believe something dumb instead of the truth. Okay, that's apostasy. That's the clearest evidence of an unregenerate, unsaved soul. Now, again, we don't get the final word. There are saints of God who seem to have left and come back. Jesus, when he talks about the the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which of course is a conversation for a completely different sermon, he says, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. you're like, that? Really? God has mercy on people that you don't think he should. that You don't think he would. And the best thing to do when wondering about the state of a soul is to put all your hopes in the eternal mercies of God. But the point of what John is saying here is not to consider those who leave the church as Christians who decided not to be, who deconverted, but rather as people who were never actually Christians to begin with. That's what he's writing about the people that he knows. He says they were not of us, which means they still need to encounter the life-changing truths of Jesus. And as I pointed out at the beginning, there's a line. You know, there are, there are things that a Christian, one who has the anointing of the Holy Spirit on them and in them, There's things that a Christian will believe and know to be true. In order to be a Christian, they have to believe and know these things. You will not find a Christian with the Spirit of God in them who denies Christ. Paul writes to the Corinthians about this. 1 Corinthians 12, 3, he says, Therefore I make known to you that no one, speaking by the Spirit of God, calls Jesus accursed. And you're like, duh. No one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. When John says in verse 20, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. He's talking about the doctrinal truths about who Jesus is. That's the knowledge that the Holy One has anointed you with. Verse 21, when he says, I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. He's assuming that these children, in order to become children of God, in order to be in the church, that they had the knowledge of these Jesus truths, the essentials. You don't get in without Jesus. You know that. You don't get to invent who Jesus is once you're in. It's gotta be the real one. It's gotta be fully God, fully man, son of the Father, who died for our sins, rose from the dead, and is coming back soon. That Jesus. And that's that's who, who the Holy Spirit talks about, is that Jesus. In verse 23, when John writes, No one has denied the Son, no one who has denied the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the son has the father also. He's just quoting his other book. He's just quoting Jesus from the gospel. In John 12, 44, Jesus says, he who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. In John 13, verse 20, he who receives me receives him who sent me. So John is saying the people who deny Christ don't say that they know God. They don't. They're outside. They're not of us. They don't have God because the only access to him is through his son Christ, his son Jesus Christ. The people thinking they're getting to God without going through Jesus are wrong. They're deceived or they're deceiving. He calls them liars here because he's talking about the people teaching the bad doctrine. They are quite literally anti-Christ because they offer a spirituality or a theology that is without Jesus. That's anti-Christ. God has given you his Holy Spirit so that you can know the greatest mystery ever, God manifest in the flesh. Now let's be reminded of why John is writing this stuff. He's writing that your joy may be full. We read that in chapter one, right? I don't know about you, but being recentered on Jesus, the God who is man, who died for my sins, who rose from the dead and is coming again, that's got to be where the joy is. That's why he's writing this. He's writing so that you'd have fellowship with God and his church, that you would stop sinning. He's writing so that you would know that you have eternal life. Each doctrinal point he makes in this book is hammering these truths home, these same reasons for writing. And this total dedication to the true doctrines of Christ, that he is God, that he is man, that we are reconciled to God through him. And this, this hope in his return in these last days, knowing our days are short and living like it. These things complete our joy. Knowing Jesus is joyful. Looking forward to meeting him face to face is joyful. Knowing Jesus is having fellowship with the Father. Seeing Jesus as fully God and yet humbling himself to become fully man to take your humanity in all its awful filth will lead you to, not only to holiness, but again, that joy. This is your weapon against sin, knowing these truths. Knowing that the truth of Jesus sets you free will give you the confidence that belongs to you you will know that you have eternal life, that he who the Son sets free is free indeed. You're going to know that you have eternal life because you know personally the one who gives it. that The one who is the resurrection and the life. And as always, John, you know, he's writing this book. He says, I know Jesus and he changed me and I want you to know Jesus so you can be changed too. So he's warning them against false teachers and refocusing them on the truth that the Holy Spirit leads us to which is Jesus Christ, simply. Let's pray. Lord God, we love you. We, we love you. We want to have our eyes fixed on you. We want to be walking with you in truth and in love, both simultaneously. Protect us from believing things that aren't of you. Protect us from... Hoping in things that do not fulfill. From worldly things that are passing away. God, let all our affection, all our our heart's attachment be to you. And as you guard us from error, Lord. um, Guard us from bad doctrine. Also guard us from bad behavior so that we can walk in love towards one another, clinging to the truths of the gospel of who Christ is. Let us never move beyond the wonder of the incarnation. Let us recognize false Christ, even false idols in our own hearts that we would set up. Lord, we love you. We want more of you. We thank you that there's more of you to be had. In Jesus' name, amen.